0: And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started this evening, we will have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to make sure that you are in fellowship. Scripture teaches that whenever a believer is to study the word or involved in service of the Lord, he is to make sure that he is uh, in a position of experiential uh, sanctification and cleansing. And 1 John 1.9 states that uh, that is achieved in the church age through confession of sin. So we have a few moments of silent prayer, and then uh, I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful and grateful that we can be here this evening to just be refreshed and encouraged by your word. Each day we all go out into the cosmic system and we get uh, knocked around through various things that happen in life, go through various tests and various types of adversity. We constantly face uh, certain irritations from the cosmic system, either direct opposition because of our stand for the word or uh, just indirect uh, assaults, but it is when we take time to relax, study your word, focus on eternal principles, that we are refreshed, we're encouraged, and that we are pointed in the right direction, that we might learn to live in a way that uh, glorifies you, manifesting your character in our life, which is a production of God the Holy Spirit. Now, Father, we pray that as we uh, continue our study that uh, we will be focused this evening we'll be able to concentrate on the things that we study and the God the Holy Spirit will use these things as part of the uh, knowledge base that we each need to have in order to be able to look at the, the uh, world around us in order to understand interpret evaluate the things everything that goes on from a biblical perspective we pray this in Christ's name amen Today, I got a uh, phone call from a friend up in uh, Arkansas, and he referenced an email that someone had sent to me recently that contained a link to a YouTube video, and he said he wanted to play it for me, but I said, no, I've already heard it. I don't need to hear it again. And it is a video that's done by some pastor somewhere who uh, is trying to make some sort of connection between the Antichrist and our current president. Some of you may have seen this. It's one of those things that gets passed around every every now and then, and it uh, makes this connection on the basis of a statement Jesus made that he saw Satan falling from heaven uh, like lightning, and it makes connections between, uh, I think it was the uh, word for lightning, and a statement made back in Isaiah 14. But this kind of thing is just what really gives evangelicals a bad name is we always running around trying to identify the Antichrist. And we're not busy trying to find the Antichrist. We're looking for Jesus Christ. The next thing to happen in the prophetic timetable is the rapture. And it is not until after the rapture of the church, when the restrainer is removed, that the antichrist is revealed as we've studied recently in second Thessalonians chapter 2 so we always have to be on guard for these kinds of things and as i've stated many times from from this pulpit in our study of revelation the um and the the devil satan has no more knowledge of when the rapture is going to occur when the tribulation will begin than you and i do it is hidden in the uh, counsel of God, and he is the only one who knows that timing. And just because there are things that look uh, propitious in terms of history and timetables and technology and all of these other things doesn't mean that the rapture is around the corner or in the next 10 years or the next 50 years. And yet we always have people, uh, and this has been true since probably the early church, trying to uh, hang the title Antichrist on on someone during the uh, war, American War for Independence. Many preachers called George III the Antichrist. Later on, Napoleon was the Antichrist. In the 19th century, Bismarck uh, was the Antichrist. Then Wilhelm II during World War I and Adolf Hitler during World War II. And since then, there have been all kinds of candidates, and maybe one of these or another of these would have or could have or might have been the Antichrist if the rapture had occurred in that generation because Satan has to be prepared, just as you and I need to be prepared to either face physical death or the rapture at any moment because we know that we would be face-to-face with the Lord one way or the other and that there would be an end to our time on earth and therefore a time of accountability for what? what we face it what we have done in life in terms of our spiritual life and spiritual growth satan has to be ready at in the same way to put his man forward to have his person waiting in the wings to be that little horn of daniel chapter 7 to move into place to take control of the of the 10 nation confederacy so there are always going to be people that uh, are politically unpopular or just are actually evil in the case of people like Stalin or Hitler or others. But we don't need to waste our time trying to figure out uh, those things. We need to just sit. We need to uh, relax and study the Word and let the Word of God uh, inform us as to these things. We're in Revelation chapter 13. Revelation chapter 13 introduces us to the two of the key players on the devil's side, on the devil's team during the tribulation period, they are identified in Revelation 13 as beasts. Two different beasts. The first is the Antichrist. That term is only used in First John uh, to describe the one who is the first beast. It's not a. Uh, there are numerous titles used to refer to him in the Scriptures, in Daniel, Second Thessalonians, Revelation 13 uh first john but uh, that's the one that most people have adopted to to always use uh the fact that they're called beasts is a it indicates their character that from god's perspective they are not men They are not human beings. They do not represent mankind as God created mankind to be. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 and 27, God created the human race in his image and likeness to be his vice-regent, to represent him and and rule as his uh, representative over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and the uh, beasts of the field. And when... Man, as Adam, the first man, failed in that responsibility and sinned, it is only through Jesus Christ, the second Adam, that that mission is going to be fulfilled. And that is not fulfilled until we come to the uh, second coming of Jesus Christ and the establishment of his kingdom. In between, you have various human rulers who come to the foreground, Establishing various kingdoms on the earth, all of which represent the value system of the cosmic system. Arrogance, uh, on the part of man, uh, hostility towards God, emphasizing human autonomy and human independence. And in, under the rule of man, for the purpose of man, with man as the ultimate reference point in these kingdoms, they ultimately manifest the characteristics of the sin nature and they become ugly as far as God is concerned their uh, unrighteousness characterizes those those kingdoms and no matter how uh, nobly they may begin they always deteriorate into Unrighteousness because that is the trend in the cosmic system. And so they are pictured in Daniel and in Revelation 13 as being bestial. That represents their voracious character because they are out to do everything, those in power are out to do everything for their own, their own good and not for the good of those that they, over whom they rule. So last time we looked at the first beast, the beast of the sea. After our study background in Daniel, uh, looking at Daniel 7, 8, uh, a little bit in 9 and 11, we looked at the first beast, who is the uh, is the Antichrist, and he rules a kingdom that rep- that that represents and manifests all the characteristics of the major kingdoms that were prophesied uh, by Daniel. In verse three, because this becomes a critical part of the second half of the chapter, the, one of the things that indicates who this individual is, he, he has a wound that would be fatal and appears to be fatal, and there is a, a resurrection that occurs. Whether it is a real resurrection or a pseudo-resurrection is uncertain, but it is this appearance of a resurrection from the dead that is used to somehow validate him as this substitute Christ. That's what the word antichrist means, not one who is against Christ, even though he is, but the Greek preposition anti means a substitute, uh, substitute Messiah. He received his authority from the dragon. Of course, we learned in Revelation 12, the dragon is another title for Satan. He is worshipped by the people as God. So there's this religious orientation to his 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 kingdom, and he has uh, unlimited worldwide authority for 42 months. Now, that must come in the second half of the tribulation. If it came in the first half of the tribulation, it would not make sense because it ends when he is destroyed by the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. He and the second beast are sent to the immediately to the uh, lake of fire. He is antagonistic to God, blasphemes against God, he makes war with the saints. Uh, verse 7, he has authority over every tribe, tongue, and nation, so it is truly a worldwide global kingdom. And he is worshipped by those who are known as the earth dwellers, which is a title for those who are negative to God throughout the tribulation period and never do respond, uh, never do respond to the gospel. And then we come to verse 11. Verse 11 says, John says, then I saw another beast. Another beast, another, a similar beast, but another one. This connects, the use of the term beast connects him to the first one, that they are very similar in their nature, their makeup, their background, and their authority. He sees another beast. This is the Greek word alas, meaning uh, another of the same kind. So they're connected together. This one, though, comes up out of the earth. The first one came up out of the sea. Now, there's been a lot of discussion, as I pointed out last time, as to how this indicates the ethnic origin of these two individuals. Uh, some have attempted to make the Antichrist Jewish, the first beast Jewish, and but this is difficult to see how they would uh, take someone of this nature as the as the Messiah, because if he um, it seems that he is a Gentile, he is connected to these Gentile kingdoms by virtue of the imagery that comes out of Daniel chapter seven, the sea representing the uh, chaotic uh, sea of peoples and nations in history that, that produces him. And I think the reason that he is said to come out of the sea, the first beast, comes out of the sea is because there is this specific connection to Daniel and the imagery of Daniel. He comes out of the sea just as the four beasts in Daniel came out of the sea. And the beast is depicted then in, in verse two in the same way that they, the four beasts were depicted with Daniel as a uh, bear and a leopard and a lion, and so the, the writer is making that specific connection. Why the second beast comes out of the earth is really uncertain. There are many who have taught, and I've probably said this in the past because that's what I always heard and was taught, and that is that the word uh, gay there in um in Greek for earth is also the word that you refer, you, means land and that uh, it would come out of the land, meaning the land of Israel, the land of the, of the people of Israel. And so the first beast would be Gentile and the second beast would be Jewish. But if you do a word study in the book of Revelation on the use of the word gay for um, for earth, it's not used of the land of Israel in that technical sense, anywhere in the book other than perhaps here. And there's nothing contextually here to force us into that uh, that determination. So there's not anything in the context, anything in in Revelation that would support that. We call this one the false prophet because it appears that he is the mouthpiece, the representative of the first beast. And the first beast is the one who claims to have deity. The second beast represents him. That is the role of a prophet. So that is why he is designated as the false prophet, even though that is not what he is called in this particular, in this particular passage. So John says, I saw another beast coming out, out of the earth. And then he has an interesting description. He had two horns, like a lamb. Now, if we compare this or contrast it to the first verse of the passage that talked about the first beast that had seven heads and ten horns, there's obviously something that is much, much diminished in the second beast. He has two horns and that would indicate that he has limited power he doesn't it's not the 10 horns it's two horns maybe that even indicates that he's related to two different uh nations but nothing that i've read or studied or researched on this uh comes to any kind of clear conviction as to what those two horns represent what is important is that he is said to be like a lamb like a lamb. Jesus Christ is referred to in Revelation 5-6 as a lamb who was slain. Uh, lamb is the favorite title that is used in the book of Revelation for the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's used some 27 times in the book of Revelation. He is the one who is worthy because he is the one who was, who died on the cross and paid the penalty for sin. So the fact that this second beast is like a lamb that brings in that comparison. He is like a lamb, but he is not the lamb. He is a counterfeit. He has he tries to imitate or mimic uh Jesus Christ as the Messiah, and yet he speaks like a dragon. There is an external appearance that tries to counterfeit perhaps Christianity and Jesus Christ, or at least an ecumenical type view of Jesus Christ, or maybe even a New Age-like view of Jesus Christ. But he speaks like a dragon. And I think that is an important phrase to pay attention to because what that does is it forces our attention not to what he does because he is going to perform some incredible miracles. And people, it seems, just have a weakness for the miraculous, that so if anybody comes along and seems to actually heal somebody or promise healing or perform some sort of uh, real uh, miracle or wonder, that people then think that automatically validates everything that they say. But the scriptures take it just the opposite way. The signs and wonders are uh, nothing more than a uh, a validation, a calling card, as it was, to draw attention to something rather than a a true validation. And we'll look again, if we have time tonight, uh, to Deuteronomy chapter 13, where God warned the Israelites that if someone comes along, claims to be a prophet, and they have many signs or wonders, and they uh, actually perform miracles, but they tell you to worship other gods, don't follow them because their message conflicts with the message that clearly came from God, that you shall have no other gods beside before me. And so the real issue, according to God, is not what they do, not their miracles, their signs, their wonders, their charismatic personality, not what they promise, but it is what they say. It is the content of their speech. It is their belief system, and that's what must be analyzed. And if you are a Bible-believing Christian, then you are going to, if you are consistent with the Scriptures, you're going to hold onto certain key elements of, of Scripture, and you're going to understand that Jesus Christ is God, that Jesus Christ is eternal God. He is the co-equal, co-eternal, second person of the Trinity who entered into human history, took on uh, to himself human uh, flesh, he became a genuine human being so that without giving up any of his deity or diminishing any of his deity, he added to himself true 100% but not sinful humanity. And as the God-man then, he was able to be genuine humanity and to live to fulfillment that which was intended for the first man, for Adam. And Jesus Christ was able to fulfill that original mission of Adam in terms of not yielding, not submitting to temptation, but living his life in complete and total dependence upon God, in complete and total obedience uh, to the Lord Jesus Christ, I mean, to the Father and to the Word. And so... He was then qualified to go to the cross because he was sinless. That is the foundation of Christianity is to think of Jesus Christ as the one born and conceived and born by a virgin, that he is the eternal God and has all of the attributes of deity, that he was absolutely sinless that he went to the cross where he died as our substitute, and that he was buried and that he rose again on the third day. That is who Jesus Christ is, and that he is what he claimed to be when he said that he and the Father were one, he is complete deity, when he said that he was the resurrection, the life, and that anyone who believed in him, though he were dead, yet shall he live, And when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no man can come to the Father except by me, Jesus was stating that he was the only way to the Father, and that he was the one who represented the Father, and that all of his authority came directly uh, from the Father. And that is who Jesus Christ is. So when others come along and change that, no matter what they call that particular Jesus, does it mean that they are Christian or that they are Bible-believing. So, you know, it's the old saying that a rose by any other name is still a rose. Well, Jesus, no matter what, you know, no no matter who you call Jesus, his character has to be the same. I know there's a little shift in the metaphor there, but... You understand what I'm getting at. His char- You can't change the character of Jesus and have the Jesus of the Bible. You can't change the work of Jesus and have the Jesus of the Bible. You can't, change- you can't deny the virgin birth and have the Jesus of the Bible. You can't deny the resurrection and have the Jesus of the Bible. You can't deny the miracles and have the Jesus of the Bible. The Jesus of the Bible needs to be the one who was conceived and born of a virgin, who performed the miracles who uh, taught what he taught, that he was the only way to God, who's fully God, died on the cross, and was raised from the dead. So the way to tell the difference is by examining the content of speech. That is emphasized all the way through Scripture. And so the second beast has an appearance. He has a counterfeit camouflage that looks like the lamb, but... He speaks like a dragon, and again, the dragon is Satan, so we know that the human viewpoint, demonically influenced, uh, information that comes out of the mouth of the second beast is not, makes him not a lamb. He's indicated by the content of speech. Then we come to verse 12. Verse 12 states, and he exercised all the authority of the first Beast in his presence, and causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. Now, when we go through these verses in Revelation 13, thirteen eleven to eighteen, what we'll see is that there are thirteen different uh, characteristics that are set out for the um, for the false prophet. The first, as I said in verse one, we have three. He comes out of the earth. Second, he had two horns like a lamb. Third, he he speaks as a dragon. Now it says in verse 12 that he exercises all of the authority of the first beast in his presence. Now if you look back to the first, um, first part of the chapter and you look at, Verse 4, we read, so they worshipped the dragon who gave authority to the beast. This is the same word in both places, both in verse 4 and in verse 12. You have the Greek word exousia, which indicates the exercise of control or authority or power over something. And so it indicates that they have power over something and the source of the power is the dragon. Verse 4 says that the first beast has his authority from the dragon and the second beast exercises all of the authority of the first beast. So that means that his authority derives from Satan just as much as the authority of the first beast and he exercises that in his presence. Now that's an important thing to observe there because the second beast is thought by some to be uh to, to maybe take the place of the first beast uh, i've heard some people say the first beast actually gets killed and the second beast is a is a substitute beast who comes in making it look like there's a resurrection but that's not what this states it says, it says he exercises his authority in the presence of the first beast they operate together the second beast is the right hand man of the first beast, and this is because he is the one who is the the, the religious mouthpiece of the first beast. He is the one who uh, forces all on the earth to worship the first beast, so there is definitely this religious orientation to the uh, to the kingdom of the Antichrist. People today think that especially in America coming out of the uh, out of the Enlightenment and the post-Enlightenment period and post-modern period, that you can have a purely secular society. But pure secularism is, ju- as we've studied many times, pur- pure secularism is just as religious as any religion. And you just have an overt or a covert way uh, uh, operation of religion Uh, Romans chapter 1 verses 19 to 21 emphasizes that we either worship the creator or we worship the creature, but we're always worshiping something. And so that is what, what happens here is there's going to be an overt worship that is directed to the first beast and his claim to deity, and that's what is brought into the passage by the last phrase, Uh, reminding us of the fatal wound that is healed. It is the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. So it indicates that the exercise of this authority and the uh, worshiping of the first beast comes after there is this miraculous healing of the wound or this pseudo-resurrection that takes place on the part of the first beast, uh, the Antichrist. And it is on the basis of this uh, alleged miracle, this resurrection, that is going to get everybody's attention. And so many are going to uh, just swoon over the fact that this must have been uh, an act of God to have raised him from the dead and brought him back from the dead, and they're going to worship him. And this is something that is um, just standard operating procedure in the deceptive practice of Satan. So we see in verse verse 12. First of all, he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence, and that phrase "in his pre- presence" also indicates. Um, so we see the fourth characteristic of the of the first beast is that he has the same authority as the as the first beast. Second beast has the same authority as the first beast in verse 12, and then the second uh, or the fifth point, the fifth characteristic we see that's. Uh, Found in verse 12 is that he, it's done in his presence, which indicates that he is a spokesperson for the Antichrist. He represents him, he carries out his mandates and his policies. And so he acts as that right hand, uh, right hand man. And then the third thing that we note is that uh, he directs or causes everyone on the earth. To worship the first beast. Now, this is very interesting terminology in the in the Greek here, because you have the same word uh, used. It's translated exercises in the first part of the verse, and causes in the uh, in that second phrase. They both are the um, the Greek verb poieo, which means it just has a wide range of meaning, like we use our word to do or to make. And it has a broad range of meaning. It can mean to do something, to create something, to make something, to cause something to happen, to produce something, to manufacture something. So it just has this range of meanings and so we have to look at the text in order to see what, uh, what is there. And so verse 12 states that he, he causes or he forces or, uh, uh, makes all of the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast. Now, how he does this and how long it will take to do this and if he actually brings it to completion, we don't know. In order to make everyone on the earth uh, worship the first beast is going to be quite an endeavor, especially if this is coming at the end of the second period or towards the end of the second period of the trumpets, uh, judgments between the end of the trumpet judgments and the beginning of the of the of final bowl judgments. This is a time when there has been just tremendous turmoil uh, upon the earth and and all of the basic systems of the earth have broken down. And perhaps that's what enables him to make these kind of religious claims is that in the midst of all of this chaos and in the midst of all of this uh, uncertainty, all this destruction that has come upon the earth and those who dwell on the earth have, as, we, as we saw back in the uh, sixth seal back in Revelation chapter 6 that that sixth seal the, the commanders of the earth, the leaders on the earth take refuge in the mountains and they're basically shaking their fists at God when there's this uh, uh, just this uh, avalanche or, or storm of meteors coming onto the earth and and uh killing everyone they 're shaking their fists at God, and they they are consciously in rebellion against the one who sits on the throne and the wrath of the lamb and so, as they set their themselves against against the Lamb, then now there is the rise of this one person who seems to have great power, he is raised from the dead. And so they are devoting themselves to Him as the way to be rescued from this horrible God that is bringing, uh, bringing judgment upon them. And so, uh, that is what, what motivates them in that direction. So He's, He's being promoted as deity. They are worshiping Him as the last hope of mankind to rescue them. From all of this destruction that has come upon the earth and all the chaos that has come upon the earth and he is the one to whom they are looking. Now, when we get into the, uh, this verse and understanding the, uh, the next verse that uh, brings us to the next section, uh, he performs great signs, um, He performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men, and he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. Notice this is the third mention of the fact that there has been this this pseudo resurrection that has taken place and it's focusing on the purpose of these signs now there are signs that are performed by Satan signs and miracles that he performs in order to deceive people um, just by way of review, we recognize that ultimately all systems of thought are religious, as I pointed out a minute ago. Something always has to be worshipped. But this worship is going to have, I believe, a, a conscious re- orientation to Satan. Now, that doesn't mean, I think, and I don't think it means that everybody understands that, but a lot of people will understand that. And that is, will be made very clear where the authority comes from and that they are aligning themselves over against God. I think that's indicated, as I said, by, by that first seal. Now that's really hard for us to understand how people become so mired in their hatred and their antagonism for God. But nevertheless, that is what happens as the restraint of the Holy Spirit has come about in the tribulation period, and God, in His permissive will, is allowing people to go to the fullest extent of their of their sin nature. So we see the dynamics of deception that are taking place, and we see a picture of this earlier in one of Paul's epistles. So just keep your keep your finger here. We'll just flip over a few books to Second Corinthians, and I want you to turn to Second Corinthians chapter uh, chapter twelve. 2 Corinthians. Excuse me, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Now, the context of 2 Corinthians chapter 10, 2 Corinthians chapter 11 is that Paul's authority is being challenged by the uh, Corinthians. They have gotten into carnality and they have rejected. Uh, paul's authority, and they are being attracted to the teaching of various uh, false teachers and false prophets that come along with uh, various attractive types of religion utilizing uh, the name of Christ in that process and they at the same time they are uh, challenging paul's uh, paul's own authority and uh, the fact that he apparently was not a uh, a a well spoken uh preacher there are several times that Paul makes reference to the fact that he uh was not as uh oratorically smooth as many people might be, for example, in verse six he says for he says even though I am untrained in speech, yet I am not in knowledge, and so he uh, he just focused on the clear articulation of the word and not on its uh, packaging. And in this chapter, he defends himself as well and the truth that he teaches. In verse 10, he says, As the truth of Christ is in me, no one shall stop me from this boasting in the regions of Achaia. That's the uh, primary area in Greece around Athens, north of the Peloponnesian Peninsula. And he says then when he comes to verse 13, Uh, verse 12, let's pick up the context there, but what I do I will also continue to do that I may cut off the opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are in the things of which they boast. In other words, he's saying he is going to uh, continue steadfast in teaching the word in order to block those who are coming in with their uh, antagonistic and false message. And he explains this in verse 13. He says, for uh, such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. They were making claims related to uh, who they were, their credentials, and their authority. And this did not have anything to do with reality. They were claiming to be apostles. They were using manufactured credentials But he says, in fact, they are deceitful workers, but they claim to be apostles of Christ. And then in verse 14, he says, and somehow the slide cut off the text there. He says, and no wonder for Satan himself. Transforms himself into an angel of light. Now this is the standard M.O. for Satan. He always disguises himself as being good, as being, uh, on God's side, as being the one who represents, uh, truth and righteousness. And he is able to pull off that deception because people do not have the, uh, the doctrine or the discernment to to understand the difference. And the key is always going to come back to doctrine. It is that message of the Word. That's why we have to make sure that we really know God's Word. We have to spend time reading it. We have to spend time studying it. And that is our means to the end of getting to know uh, the Lord Jesus Christ and the Father and building that close relationship with Him. That is the foundation for our, for our discernment. So Satan transforms himself into an angel of light, verse 14, and then in verse 15 we read, Therefore it is no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness. These are the false prophets. These are the ones who claim to be promoting religion. These are your ecumenical preachers. These are your motivational preachers. These are many of your... Uh, just false religion uh, promoters who promote various forms of Buddhism and New Age thought, Mormonism, uh, Jehovah's Witness, uh, Islam, all of these are claimed to have the truth. And that's very confusing for many people because they see people come along and say, you claim to have the truth, and this person claims to have the truth, that person claims to have the truth, and I see problems with everything, and I just don't know how to make a decision. And so they just get turned off because they don't, they're do not they basically spiritually uh, negative, and they don't want to go through the process of analysis and study and prayer and coming to an understanding of the truth. So Satan's ministers, those who proclaim his lies and those who are directly indwelt at, by him and empowered by him, are those who disguise themselves as really being righteous, as really being good. They ought, who in the world would be against morality? Who would be against being good? Satan is not the one who's going to show up looking uh, evil, looking ugly. I always thought that uh, the, the film, The Exorcist in the book, made it look ugly like Satan is the one who's going to show up in all of this horror, and the reality is when Satan shows up, he's going to be the most uh, attractive, the most winsome, uh, the the most pleasing personality, and he's going to be the last person in the room that would be picked to be the devil. And you, you see this with the disciples. I mean, when, when uh, Jesus announced that one of them had a devil in him, had the devil in him, one of them was... Uh, possessed by Satan, they looked around at each other, saying, "Who is it? Lord is it me? Is it him? who is it they wouldn't they, Judas was the last person they would have picked because Satan doesn't walk around flaunting his evil and his horror. he masks it in the most attractive package that he can that he can find, so his ministers are those who uh, are ministers of righteousness, but their ends will be according to their according to their works and so uh, the first be- the uh, second beast is clearly defined as the one who is the promoter of the deception, and he does this through his miracles and through his signs and in revelation thirteen thirteen we'll see the seventh uh, characteristic of the uh, of the false prophet that he performs great signs, tremendous signs, tremendous miracles, miracles that imitate the miracles of the two witnesses who had come back in Revelation chapter eleven. For he is even going to uh, bring fire down from heaven upon. Uh, in, in the sight of men, this is a way in which God has demonstrated His justice many times in the Old old Testament. We studied the most prominent of them recently in our study of uh, Second Kings. I mean, First Kings chapter 18. So it is the signs, though, that are intended for deception. When we just look down to going back to Revelation 13, when we just look down into uh, the next verse, uh, verse 14. We read, and he deceives those who dwell on the earth by the signs. That is, the purpose for his signs is to uh, deceive people. Now, the scripture says that there were true signs that were evident and given as evidence or corroboration of the message of the apostles that were uh, their credentials. The signs of a true apostle, Paul said, were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles, so there is an, a thought, uh, there is an authenticating aspect to miracles, but it is not distinct or separate from the content of of the message and this deception that will come fits with the pattern that the Lord Jesus Christ warned of in matthew twenty four twenty four where he said, false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. And the term the elect there is just a, a synonym for those who are saved. And those who are saved would be deceived because these are the slickest counterfeit miracles that have ever occurred in History. And there have been numerous times in history that Satan has had some very uh, very slick miracles. We read in the scriptures about the magicians in Pharaoh's court. Jonas and Jambres are mentioned in 2 Timothy 3, 8, and 9, and they duplicated some of the initial miracles and signs that, that Moses had when he came to challenge Pharaoh to release the Jews. We also see the evidence of people like Simon uh, Simon Magus, also called Simon the magician, in Acts chapter 8, verses 9 through 11. So Satan has great power, and he can use that power to deceive and to distract. And the only thing, once again, that protects believers, of course in the church age we have God, the Holy Spirit. We're protected by the Word of God, though it is the discernment that comes from Bible doctrine that protects us from the deceptions in the world. But the sad thing is when we live in a world where there is so little, uh, so little biblical knowledge, and when Christians are so biblically illiterate and the ministries from so many pulpits have been watered down that people don't have the content. Their thinking hasn't been challenged uh, with enough to be able to exercise, exercise discernment, and that is why it is so important to get into the details of the text and to really study all the implications and applications of passages because only by doing so do we really come to understand how all of the word of God interconnects, interrelates, networks together to build that, that framework of Bible doctrine. So Satan can perform a lot of miracles. He cannot create life ex nihilo, though, as God can. He can... Create, he can form, I think, using the other uh, words for create that we have in Scripture, but the initial words that we have in Genesis chapter 1, the verb bara is used only of God. Man can't create in that bara sense uh, that we have in Genesis chapter 1. Now, Genesis chapter 1 also uses the Hebrew verbs asa and yatzer to speak of God's creative activity, and man can make things he can create at a derivative level satan can create at a derivative level i'm sure with his power he can create in ways that man uh, can't create and in ways that man can't uh can't discern so he can duplicate or counterfeit uh god's miracles in numerous ways so he can uh he could counterfeit a resurrection he's not giving new life he is just making it appear as if he's bringing someone back to life, a real uh, resurrection. He can counterfeit miracles, and these are, though, are lying miracles. They may be a genuine miracle. But they are deceptive because they are claiming to substantiate something or to uh, uh, credit something as true and from God when it is not from God. So these are called lying wonders, as we've seen in Second Thessalonians, Second Thessalonians chapter two, uh, verse ten. Now, God allows that, we know from Deuteronomy chapter 13, in order to test us to see if we are going to be true to his word or whether we are going to be led astray by that which uh, stimulates our senses and excites us, and especially in a world where there's so much horror and violence and destruction and death, as we see in the latter half of the tribulation, For the Antichrist and the false prophet to come along and have these false miracles to provide false hope, uh, the people will be grasping at straws. But the only real hope and the only hope that we have in life is the Lord uh, Jesus Christ. That brings us to Revelation chapter 13, verse 14. And in verse 14, we have the eighth and ninth characteristics of the Antichrist. The eighth characteristic is that he deceives those who dwell on the earth through these signs. So he deceives those, and it states in the text there, he deceives those who dwell on the earth by these signs, which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast. Now that phrase, he was granted to do, is a passive voice verb in the Greek, which doesn't tell us who... The text doesn't tell us who gave him that authority, but we would assume that it is God who through his permissive will allows the false prophet to uh, to engage in these kinds of miracles. Satan has been limited from performing these kinds of miracles in the past. Uh, God used fire from heaven many times in the Old Testament. For example, he used fire from heaven to judge Sodom. He used fire from heaven to uh, judge the rebellious Nadab and Abihu in Leviticus 10, Uh, 1 through 2. He used fire from heaven in order to uh, uh, just to vaporize the altar uh, of Elijah, and in a few other instances in the Old Testament. But the, Satan is never allowed to duplicate that miracle in the Old Testament. In the in, in the tribulation period, the two uh, witnesses will uh, have that power, and then God is going to uh, allow the false prophet to duplicate that. And so uh, that's the in- emphasis of that passive verb. God is going to allow uh, them to... Duplicate some of these miracles uh, in the sight of the beast to deceive the earth dwellers. And uh, excuse me, Second Thessalonians chapter two, verse ten, stated that the that God was going to send false signs and wonders, to and a deluding influence on the unbelievers in the tribulation period. They, he's not forcing them to unbelief. They've already made that decision. They've rejected God, and so he's just going to intensify that negative volition and intensify their delusion, and they will follow after uh, after the first and second beast. The ninth thing that we see is that the false prophet will oversee construction of an image of the first beast that is to be worshipped. He's going to build an idol, a physical representation of the first beast, and the people are going to worship it. You know, when we think about this, it reminds us of the image that Nebuchadnezzar built. And we go back to Daniel chapter 3, where he uh, built this huge, this enormous image of himself and put it out on the plain of Dura. And when the orchestra played, everybody was supposed to bow down and worship that idol, and that was a representative of Nebuchadnezzar. Well, that is a that is a foreshadowing of what takes place uh, here in Revelation uh, 14, 13, and 14. But it's going to go to another level. Uh, we're reminded here again, that the beast, the image is of the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. notice how he that keeps being repeated for emphasis to to show that um, that that is the the real miracle that has brought everybody to uh, to worship him and then uh, verse fifteen. He was granted power, again, passive voice of the uh, verb to give. He was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast. Now, this has never happened before. Uh, he's going to uh, give breath to this, this, this uh, piece of human construction. It is going to breathe. And he says um, uh, he's going to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak, and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be, and then that got cut off in the, uh, fortunately, to as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. Just lost the one word. Would not worship the image of the beast, uh, all those who would not worship him to be killed. So there is a death penalty for those who would not worship worship the beast. So re- verse 14 gives us two things. He deceives those who dwell on the earth through his signs, and he con- oversees the construction of this image of the first of the first beast. Now, this is is something that's never before happened in history with regard to an idol. In the Old Testament, idols were always uh, ridiculed for being dumb, for being unable to speak, for being just lifeless stones. So the uh, tenth characteristic that we see of the false prophet, uh, comes out of verse 15 and s- states that he gives breath to the image of the beast and he gives it the ability to speak. So this is, uh, this really ratchets things up another notch. God, as you see, is just letting evil go to its fullest extent. He is removing all restraints. Uh, some of the passages in the Old Testament that uh, ridicule the idols as being lifeless and speechless and breathless. For example, Psalm 135, verses 16 and 17 state, They have mouths, but they do not speak. Eyes they have, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear, nor, and this got cut off the slide, nor is there any breath in their mouths. Isaiah 46, 7 says, They bear it on their shoulder. They carry it and set it on its place, and it stands. From its place it shall not move, referring to this uh, inanimate idol. Uh, though one cries out to it, yet it cannot answer nor save him out of his trouble. It is truly impotent. Hebrews, uh, excuse me, Habakkuk 2:18 and 19 states, What profit is the image that its maker should carve it, the molded image a teacher of lies, that the maker of its mold should trust in it, to make mute idols, woe to him who says to wood, awake; to silent stone, arise. It shall teach. Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, yet in it there is no breath at all. So, in contrast to all previous idolatry in human history, God is going to allow these to uh, to, to to speak. So, the eleventh characteristic that comes out of uh, verse verse 15, is that the false prophet will cause those who don't worship the image to be killed. Then we come to Revelation 13, 16, and 17, and that got cut off here. We'll go to this slide. He causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads, and that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark, or the uh, has the mark or the name or the number the name of the beast or the number of his name. And that word that's translated mark is the Greek word karagma, which means a mark that is engraved or etched or branded, cut, imprinted, or stamped. It could refer to a tattoo. Tattoos have become very popular in recent years. It could refer to, uh, a lot of people think it's an embedded chip. It may be an embedded chip that's connected to an external mark. The idea here is that it is visible. People will be able to look at other people and see this mark that identifies them as a beast worshiper. It is a physical sign of their allegiance to the beast and worshiping him. It's not something like a, like a credit card or some chip or something of that nature that's just involuntarily, uh, given to them or that they didn't realize what it signified, uh, but it is tied to some sort of oath, some act of worship of the beast. They're gonna have to go out, as it were, to the field, uh, of Dora and bow down to the idol and then they get their, uh, then they get their mark and Christians believers at that time will not do that they will not uh buy down, bow down but if you don't do it you will be virtually cut off from all society you'll be cut off from being able to purchase food you'll be able to you won't be able to purchase anything that is necessary for life you won't be able to pay any bills you won't be able to shop you won't be able to travel you won't have access to medical supplies and the the issue here is to completely exclude from society anyone who is a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and so it is at, at the extreme attempt in human history to control all of the economy. And as we move forward in history with the technology we have, it's very easy to see how this can take place with the advent of computers and computerization. Many people think that we are moving closer and closer to a cashless society. And if we go to a cashless society where you don't buy anything with actual money, it's all done through some sort of credit card or through an embedded computer chip that has all the information on it or something of that nature, then all commerce can be controlled by the government and everyone can be tracked. And that is indication of the kind of control that the uh, Antichrist will have during the, uh, tribulation uh, during the tribulation period. And then we come to the last verse in the chapter, which is one of those verses where there's so much uh, speculation. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. His number is 666. And there are so many different uh, speculations about this. What we do know for sure is six in biblical, in the biblical use of, of numbers represents man. Man is created on the sixth day. Seven is the number of completion or the number of perfection. Three is the number of God, the number of the Trinity. But six is the number of man. And it is a threefold six. Three indicating, uh, God. So it is man deifying himself. And if it has any other indication or any other significance, then we're not sure. Uh, some people try to say it was uh, Ronald Wilson Reagan because each name had six letters in it. In the ancient world, they've tried to make it out to be uh, the numerical value of the name of uh, Caligula, the name of, of Nero, or the name of various other Caesars, but it wasn't them. Others have tried all manner of other ways to uh, make this fit or identify somebody, and I'm personally do not believe its significance will be uh, apparent until the Antichrist is revealed and then it will be apparent how the number 666 uh, relates to him he is I think going to be the uh, finest uh, example of of humanity, fallen humanity, that Satan can produce, uh, the smartest, most brilliant, most capable, and uh, the most powerful in all of human history. And that is, I think, signified uh, by this number. So that brings us to the end of this part of the scorecard uh, that rep- that tells us who the players are. We've talked about the two witnesses uh, back in Chapter 11. And we've talked about the woman, the child, and the dragon in chapter 12, the two beasts in chapter 13. And then next time we'll start with the uh, the lamb and the 144,000 on Mount Zion in chapter 14. Now this really brings us to the end of the uh, tribulation period. We may not be at the very end, but we're at the beginning of the end and I think the beginning of the campaign of Armageddon. And so chapter 14 through 19 is going to take us through various uh, scenarios that uh, come into effect during, the, I believe, the last half of the last half of the tribulation. In other words, the last quarter of the tribulation period. Let's bow our heads in closing prayer. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word, recognizing that everything in your word is designed to teach us about who you are, who we are as fallen creatures who are desperately in need of grace, and that you have provided everything for us in our salvation and in our spiritual life, and that you have called us to a holy calling because uh, you have placed in us uh, a new life. You've given us God, the Holy Spirit, And you have uh, given us a complete, sufficient, closed canon of Scripture so that we can learn to live as you would have us to live. So, Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things we've studied this evening. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.